Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy, sitting next to me is Floki, our beta dragon mascot, and sitting opposite me is Liam. How's it going, dude? Yeah, pretty good, mate. How about yourself? Yeah, not bad, thank you. Has he been behaving, the bearded bastard? He's gone back to hiding for the past three days. That's not so bad. I'm gonna, yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna give him one more day, I think, and then uh, turf him out again. It's better than like you know, wrapping his nails and headbutting the glass and fucking everything up. That's true, but at the same time, I don't want him to go back into hibernation because I think that probably wouldn't be very good for him. Fair but enough. As far as I'm concerned, I'm at the moment I'm working on the assumption that he's sulking because he's been badly behaved recently and nobody's really given him any, you know. Pay of mind. He's having a good long think about what he's done. He's being fed. He's being, you know, taken out. All the, all the things you should do with a lizard and he's still a grumpy arsehole. So, you know, that makes three of us, right? Yes, exactly right. <laughs> you had a good week? Yeah, not bad, mate. Just uh, pretty standard. Just been watching shit, doing shit. And yeah. Lots and <laughs> lots of shit. Yeah, just because, you know, some sometimes it gets a little bit repetitive, but, you know, you just need to keep that zest going any way you can. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've um, I've filled Liam full of caffeine this evening. You have, yes. Because he normally has a Red Bull before we start. You've had a Red Bull and a coffee. Certainly have. So I'm expecting huge amounts of energy from you. Too much energy. Absolutely. He'll probably carry, you know, because obviously I've got some time off coming up soon and I'm just going to be rampaging around the country. Yes. You're going to see me on the front page of the sun. It's going to be great. <laughs> Speaking of which, actually, um, yeah, you're going to be taking a couple of weeks off. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think from this point onwards in terms of scheduling for when this is released next week, if I remember correctly. Yes, because this episode will be released on the 15th, yep. as, as per usual. Um, but as usual, we're going to pause the free podcast for a couple of weeks while Liam is away, but we're also going to record a couple of premium episodes in advance. So our premium customers, you know, nothing will change for you. Absolutely. Free podcast, guys. Buy a subscription. Well, yeah, essentially. <laughs> I need to do shit, I'm afraid. But yes, as usual, uh, kicking off with some film news this week. Slightly more exciting than last week, I'm hoping, at the very least. First article here from uh, EmpireOnline.com. Fede Alvarez uh, to be directing the new Alien movie. Okay. Uh, Ridley Scott has been the main man overseeing the Alien franchise of late and dashing the hopes of some other filmmakers. He's now decided to give someone else the chance to make a standalone movie, Fede Alvarez. According to The Hollywood Reporter, the Don't Breathe writer-slash-director had a pitch that he casually ran past Scott, and while he didn't immediately respond, Scott kept it in mind and is now giving Alvarez his shot. The details are being, and this is a lovely bit of phrasing, I've no idea why they've done this, the details are being kept in an egg for now. What? Oh, I guess for the face hugger egg. I suddenly get it. Uh, I read that earlier. I'm like, what you, is, that, is that a phrase I'm unaware of? Kept in an egg? No, no, no. Fair enough. Fair enough. Very clever. But we do know it won't connect directly to either the Ripley saga or Scott's Prometheus-led prequels, but will be set in the same universe. So expect slavering xenomorphs and facehuggers, plus probably some unexpected humans just ready to be hosts or fight back. According to 20th Century Studios boss Steve Aspel, the company went for the new project because... It was just a really good story with a bunch of characters you haven't seen before. I'm fairly excited about this. Yeah, I mean, the thing with Alvarez is that he currently only has one thing under his belt that I actually like, which is the first Don't Breathe. Yeah. Because the 2013 Evil Dead reboot was a pile of shit. Um, Don't Breathe 2 was actually directed by his um, associate, I think the guy's name is Rodo Ciarguez. Um, that was just a very unnecessary sequel. And then they both collaborated on the most recent Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which, as I elucidated the other week, was a massive pile of fuck. Yeah. So, I mean, don't, don't, the, the Don't Breathe is great. The first Don't Breathe is really good, though. I enjoy that film very much. And, you know, Alvarez really, really knocked it out of the park there, I believe. It's a shame that movie wasn't a theatrical release, actually, because you've just given them the perfect quote for the poster. A massive pile of fuck. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Is that, you know, I think Malcolm Tucker says at one point in, in the thick of it, like, today you have laid your first big egg of solid fuck. <laughs> and that is what that film is. It's terrible. So, so far, Alvarez, yeah, he's only done the one good thing. But it did make me think, though, actually, the similarities between Don't Breathe and the original Alien. There are certain similarities. Yeah, of course. You've got, to... you got sort of the cast of unlikely characters that have to work together against an existential threat. You've got the claustrophobia thing of, obviously, an alien, it's a spaceship, and don't breathe, it's a house. You've got the whole being stalked down by an unknown and almost supernatural force. There's quite a lot of... They're both very, very good at that tension and release thing. Yeah. And the thing about don't breathe is that it was very clever in the way that the blind man 
the way that he utilizes his disability in a predatory way mm. was actually was very interesting and very well done. So, like Alvarez proved there that he's definitely capable of making things that are attention commanding and interesting and actually have really good suspense and a, and a, and a solid screenplay, but. I just, you know, that's just the one thing. So hope, hope, hopefully this new alien will be the next thing, that he's, the second thing he's done that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. But well, I mean, it's weird though, isn't it? Because we're both huge fans of Ridley Scott as we've banged on about far too often on this podcast. Um, and everyone was really excited when the Alien franchise sort of went back to him, so to speak. And I've, he sort of dropped the ball. It was quite surprising, really. Is that everyone, that um, Alien... Covenant. Alien Covenant, yeah. yeah, which really wasn't good. Uh, so everyone just hated and then it sort of disappeared. Yeah. Really, which is the best thing for it, I guess. It says a lot, doesn't it? Yes, it really, really does yeah. say a lot. But I mean, the Alien films have always struck me as having two of them, like two entries at the very start that are absolutely incredible. And then mm. it completely dropped the ball on pretty much everyone since. I, I can't think of another good Alien film. There isn't one. I've um, said, um, I've had many conversations with a mutual friend of ours where we talk about the... Uh, the hilarity that is resident in Alien 3. Mm. There's a lot of fun. You know, Brian Glover is the, uh, what is he? He's like the warden of that prison. It's like, we've got, we got all sorts here, all scum. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's got its moments of uh, maybe unintentional hilarity, but yeah. I sort of don't mind Alien 3 in the sense that it's unbelievably weird, but it feels like an interesting, almost alternate universe spin-off kind of thing. But it just, it did some ridiculous choices. Isn't Resurrection the one you took the most umbrage with? Yeah, yeah, Resurrection is... It's, there are some actually really good sequences in Resurrection, but the ending is batshit, pencil up your nose, pants on your head, insane. I still remember you first saying to me that the ending of Resurrection is just some of the weirdest shit that you've ever seen. Thinking about it, actually, well, in terms of the ending, I struggle to think of another film that's got a madder ending. And you know, to do that in a huge franchise is mad. You think about all these art house pieces with deliberately strange and surreal and bizarre endings that go off on a tangent. No, no, no. Alien Resurrection actually put the stamp on that as to what? <laughs> what? Yeah, you know, I mean, brave choices. You've always got to applaud brave choices, haven't you? But it just, it leaves you sitting there at the end going, what did I just watch? It's some, it was almost like sort of, I don't know, body horror Cronenberg-esque porn in a weird way. You have to watch it to see what I mean anyway. But yes, still looking forward to a good Alien film. Please, before I die, can we have just one good Alien sequel well, other than Aliens? A bit worrying you phrasing it like that. Is there something you're not telling well, me? Well, hopefully that means I'm giving creators quite a lot of time to come up with something <laughs> yeah. good. I mean, it could be next week. You never, you never know. You never know. Uh, next article this week. This is from RottenTomatoes.com. Uh, Steven Spielberg to revive Bullet in a new film. At 75, Steven Spielberg is... That's a very disappointing noise you made there. <laughs> At 75, Steven Spielberg is closer to the finale of his filmography than the beginning. And is speaking of death. And his recent films seem to be ticking off dream projects from his bucket list. Ready Player One, paying homage to the 1980s, West Side Story, his first musical, and The Fablemans, a fictional adaptation of his own youth. Two of Spielberg's earliest films, Jewel and his feature film debut, The Sugarland Express, were both car chase movies, but it's a genre Spielberg hasn't really touched as a director since the 1970s. That may soon change, as he is now developing an untitled original film featuring the character of Frank Bullitt as portrayed by Steve McQueen in the groundbreaking San Francisco cop movie Bullet, which is famous for its big car chase sequence. Whatever the Bullet project ends up being titled, Spielberg will both direct and produce it for Warner Brothers and has enlisted screenwriter Josh Singer to adapt the screenplay. Um, yeah, I knew you wouldn't like this, but it's what, big what, movie What news. is a brilliant, I mean, maybe you can help me, what is a, a, a really great movie that Spielberg has made post-Jurassic Park? Um, That's not entirely rhetorical because I'm, I'm, my memory's actually not served me very well. I do like Saving Private Ryan. Yes, okay, I should have remembered that one. <laughs> but yes, it it's, has been a gradual decline in quality. I mean, Ready Player One was okay, but I thought it was overly This thing is okay, isn't it? You yeah. I mean? And I admittedly, I haven't seen West Side Story yet, but I mean, Spielberg, Spielberg doing bullets. It's... Mm. I think it's one of those concepts that no matter the director, with the possible exception of Martin Scorsese, you just say, no, not a good idea. 
But I mean, Spielberg, I, who knows? Maybe he's got some movie magic left in him. I'm really interested to see the Fablemans. We've, we've covered quite a lot of news on that. But yes. And it's, but the thing is, the, end, the ending of Bullet directly influenced the ending of Heat. Yeah. Why not, why not ask Michael Mann to direct Bullet? That's Someone said Michael idea. Mann was going to direct a Bullet reboot. I'd, I'd be a little bit... I mean, Miami Vice was just dreadful. But if someone said he was going to direct it, I would be a little bit more, okay, well, I'm interested to see what he does with it, but no, not Spielberg. <laughs> if you think about it, and I know this is going to be a contentious thing for some people because Bullet is much loved, but I, if I think of like a modern Bullet, I think of Drive. Um, well. You know, sort of, you know, it's, most of it is like a punchy LA chase sequence kind of thing, and it's got a, a style of its own and a very sort of imitable kind of thing. I don't know. I put those two films together in my head. And you go, well, I mean, to be fair, I've, I have seen some people uh, draw comparisons between uh, Gosling's uh, very taciturn performances. It's like, oh, he's doing his Steve McQueen thing. Exactly. Yeah. And, it's, and it is like a sort of, it is a palpable comparison. I see exactly what they're going for. But yeah, but um, well, yeah, I suppose like Drive has, you know, it has essentially the tropes of uh, Bullet, but with a sort of. Um, Man Friedkin esque sheen. Which, yeah. Uh, well, I, I, well, that's actually taken away from Reffin a little bit there because he's crafted out something of a singular style. But yeah, I see what you mean. You could do him as a back to back bill, I think. You know, yeah. It, it, it wouldn't feel out of place. But there what, you go. Drive and Bullet. Drive and Bullet. Yeah. Well, Bullet and Drive is the order I put it in. I, yeah. I would still never forgive myself uh, for missing that Drive Thief combination. You just reminded me of it. Thanks for that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Not that you were intending to. Tonally, in terms of like you know, late night city glittering lights kind of thing, it's, <laughs> it's definitely more of a more of a link, isn't it? But, you know, fast car chases, taciturn character. I'm always up for that, but it has to be done really, really well. It has to be done right. Yeah. Absolutely. And my last article this week, this is from avclub.com. Mark Hamill says that Empire Strikes Back ending could have been much, much more depressing. <laughs> Believed to be one of the best sequels of all time, The Empire Strikes Back twisted the established ideas of the original film with a more serious tone and the notion that the heroes don't always win. Now, this article is going into Empire Strikes Back spoilers. I mean, I can't imagine there's anybody listening to this podcast that hasn't seen The Empire it's Strikes been, Back. What is it, 42 years? Yeah, and one of the greatest movie landmarks of all time. But just on the off chance, I would skip forward about three or four minutes. Okay? <laughs> that's how long we're going to be here. But yes, I'll read from the article. This is where the spoilers begin. Towards the end of the film, Luke Skywalker loses a whole limb to Darth Vader with said enemy dropping some pretty shocking parentage news on the poor guy. Then Leah confesses her love to Han, everyone's favorite smuggler, right before he gets a cold carbonite bath. The audience and characters just keep taking one hit after another, but there was a bit of starlight at the end of the tunnel. After facing devastating losses, the two heroes hug each other and look out of the galaxy as John Williams' score brings a hopeful note to the characters' futures. The ending is iconic, highlighting Star Wars' ability to balance the light and the dark throughout its films. That wasn't always the plan, though, according to Force user and voice actor extraordinaire Mark Hamill. After fans inquired whether the final shot of Luke and Leia hugging was a reshoot, Hamill confirmed it himself on Twitter. Filmed four months after we wrapped principal photography on Empire Strikes Back, it wasn't a reshoot, it was an added scene, replied Hamill. With there being concerns about the downbeat ending and thorough defeat of the protagonist, Hamill says that the final shot was included as an uplifting moment of hope and rejuvenation to reassure the audience. Now, I put this article in because I think that's actually really interesting. Can you imagine the Empire Strikes Back without that ending? It would be unnecessarily dark, wouldn't it? That ending shot of the, you know, the score and oh my god, you know, everything's changed in the universe. It's all got dark. Where are we going to go next? That ties the whole piece together, doesn't it? Well, yeah. Without yeah. it, you'd just be leaving the cinema going, God, that was depressing. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, there's necessity in it because it, it gives it the to be continued vibe. That yeah, it makes you want to go and see the next one. right yeah. into Jedi. So, yeah, I mean, not only, yeah, I mean, it. It, it precludes the audience from feeling thoroughly depressed, but also stylistically, it just needs to happen. It needs to resolve the tale at that point. Yeah, you can't just leave it where everyone's dead, dying, and, and scattered across the universe. You have to bring them back together and show that they're going to continue onwards. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the ending of Empire is, well, I mean, if, if you're like a diehard Star Wars fan, I guess it's still a bit, you know, crestfalling. Yeah, but that's one of the like, nice things about the film, isn't it? Is yeah. It sort of goes in that dark direction. Absolutely, it? yeah. Creates drama and, and uh, you know, an ever-present threat that becomes all the more terrifying. Especially well, it was a, a smart decision to shoot that additional scene. Um, I do find it a little bit weird that it wasn't already there. Yeah. Because well, if, we, if we're talking about the, these, this film cycle that concludes with 
a third film that I'm pretty sure was already being planned, then you, I don't know, I would have thought it would have just been there from the beginning. To me, this just ties in with everything I've learned about the Star Wars original trilogy as an adult has revealed the very same fact, which is George Lucas was a bit of a madman and he needed holding back at points. And he needed people... Ordinarily, I'd be against a studio getting involved with an auteur's decisions within their own filmic universe. In George Lucas's case, that's exactly what needed to happen. That well, strikes yeah. me as a studio thing going, hang on, you can't leave it there because it's... It, tonally, that doesn't make any sense. And that goes for everything. And I'm, I'm sorry, you know, no sort of in, in, intended um, trolling, but um, I mean, Sky, Skywalker, at the end of the day, Skywalker is a fucking goofy surname, but it is not as goofy as Starkiller. Luke Starkiller, yeah. yes, in the original draft. That, that change was a very intelligent move. I mean, not least because he blows up the Death Star. You know, so calling him Star Killer might be a little bit on the nose, might But there you go. They're going to be so impressed by my foreshadowing. And we saw the end result of this as well with the Star Wars prequels, where George Lucas was given free reign and just went absolutely, you know, batshit bananas with it and created uh, films that are very difficult to defend. I will describe them as. What's that old? What's that? That Lucas meme where some he's saying something like, "Oh, you know, I, I didn't include all, all of these uh, things that." would give it even more pathos than what the fans were anticipating because it would distract them from all the trade deals. You know? yeah. <laughs> so I can't, I, I'm misremembering exactly how it went. But yeah, it's, it's essentially a kid's movie to sell kids toys, also interspersed with trade disputes, which in George Lucas's mind creates thrilling cinematic experiences. But there He's you go. He's an exciting man. <laughs> would love to crawl around inside his head. <laughs> Anyways, anyways. Uh, yes, that's the end of the news segment this week. Liam has a couple of film reviews to kick us off with. What have you got, my friend? Um, well, I believe, was it last week or the week before where you brought this movie up in the news? I watched Fresh. Ah, yes. The brand new uh, release this year. It's the directorial debut of Mimi Cave from a screenplay by Lauren Kahn. So this film stars Daisy Edgar-Jones as Noah. As the film opens, she is uh, she's on a date, I presume it's a Tinder date uh, with this young chap, and she's phoned her friend Molly, played by um, Jonica Gibbs from the car, and she's expressing some apprehension about going in, and she's quite nervous. And uh, she meets this guy at a Chinese restaurant, and they're having dinner, and it's not going very well. This, this guy is basically, he is your garden variety douchebag. Arrogance quite socially inept and completely clueless about it. Just very unpleasant, egotistical prick. And the date doesn't go, it doesn't go well, it doesn't end well. And she reconvenes with Molly when they're doing some training at the gym. And uh, she talks about how she's completely disillusioned with the whole process of dating. She's not really that interested in it. She just feels somewhat compelled to do it because that's what everyone's doing. And she has some neuroses about ending up alone, etc., etc. Well, one night, Noah's at home and she realises that she hasn't got anything to eat. So she goes grocery shopping. And while she's milling around in the shop, she bumps into um, this slightly older guy. Quite a handsome dude with casual demeanour. Seems quite friendly. And uh, he just strikes up a conversation with her out of nowhere. He tells her that he's buying these um, cotton candy flavoured grapes. And um, Sorry, sorry, what? You know, the cotton candy flavored grapes that, you know, no, I'm, you I'm never aware, heard of unaware of the concept. We, we were like, but, grapes. The, basically, the, um, my place of employment has sold them in the past. I must try these. Now. Yeah. 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 I haven't actually tried them. So these are sweets that look like grapes. Are they actually grapes? No, they are grapes. Grapes that taste they like They taste candy. like cotton candy or candy floss or whatever. Well, the, the things you learn on this podcast. Indeed. Yeah. Well, he says to her, Oh, I'm picking up. I'm picking these up um, for my niece and she doesn't believe me that they taste like corn candy, so try one. And he initiates a, a somewhat awkward but sort of charming in a silly way flirty banter with her. And uh, he um, eventually introduces himself as Steve and he asks for her number. And although a little bit bemused, she just ends up giving him her number. And a few days go by and he ends up texting her and he invites her out for a meal and a drink. And they really hit it off. This guy, Steve, played by Sebastian Stan, um, he's, yeah, he is uh, everything that the guy from the opening of the film wasn't. He's relaxed. He's emotionally intelligent. Uh, he's got a good sense of humor. 
Um, he's he, yeah, he just seems like a thoroughly nice, regular, easygoing guy. And um, Noah starts thinking to himself, okay, maybe I was wrong. Maybe there actually are some cool people out there. And uh, you know, this the vibe with this chap is very, very good. And um, I, yeah, I'm starting to like him quite a bit. And so everything's going well. And eventually Steve invites Noah away to, he invites her for a weekend getaway. He's got a place somewhere in a lovely rural locale. And he asks her to go and spend the weekend with him. And she is very, very excited to do so. She talks to her friend Molly about it, who voices some concern. But she's like, oh, I'll be fine, I'll be fine. And so they get to the place and everything's going groovy. And then suddenly Noah starts to feel a bit unwell. And it's because Stephen has drugged the drink he gave her and she wakes up shackled to a wall. And the reason for this is that Stephen, he's a rather wealthy chap. And the reason he is rather wealthy is because he makes shitload of money from selling weird, murky, clandestine, super rich clients human meat and human hair and all this other, as he puts it in the film, all this other weird shit. Uh, the forbidden meat. Yes, the forbidden meat. Yes. So, unfortunately for Noah, this new perfect dreamboat, kind of goofy, but, you know, kind of hot and charismatic guy, turns out that he's, yes, a complete psycho. And uh, he's intending to slowly carve off little bits of her and sell them off for exorbitant amounts of money. While simultaneously trying to maintain a twisted relationship with her that weaves in and out of platonic and romantic and it, it's essentially he is completely and utterly insane and now Noah has desperately got to find a way to get herself out of this situation and she also finds out that there are other women who have been kept for these purposes as well and so he's pretty much farming yeah well she it? yeah and she interacts we hear them um, in the adjacent rooms we see Noah conversing with them um but we, um, we we only hear their disembodied voices through the walls. So it's got that, yeah, this, there's a bit of a kiss the girls vibe thing going on there. Almost Steve is a crazy man who keeps women to, yeah, gradually sell them to cannibals. It's a weird way to phrase it, but it's rather apt. Okay, yeah, yeah. So yeah, this is essentially, this is a, 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 you know, a black comedy horror, I guess you would call it. Um... Well, this is an interesting one. This, this Mimi Cave directorial debut. Sebastian Stan uh, gives a great performance. I wasn't actually familiar with Sebastian Stan. When this film was doing the rounds on uh, Twitter and other social media platforms, people told me, oh, yeah, Sebastian Stan's back. I'd never heard of the guy, admittedly. But he is, um, he is definitely the best. He's the most recommendable thing about this film, essentially. His, his character of Steve. He really does... Uh, disappear into this dude very well. He's very believable. Uh, the demeanor is absolutely perfect. The psychopathic sort of dull affects of uh, not really comprehending Noah's horror at what he's doing. You know, he keeps, he tells her to try and relax. At one point he's like, he's like, try and relax, but he qualifies it with, you know, tension and stress spoil the quality of the meat, which is, which is lovely. Yeah, yeah but, that is a nice thought, but, isn't it? But yeah, Sebastian Stan, he does, he, he, he pulls this off very well. And uh, stylistically, there's a lot of really good choices in the film. I, I enjoyed the way it was shot. And it's also got quite a kick-ass soundtrack. Um, there's a scene early on where Noah and Steve are dancing to You're Not Good Enough by Blood Orange, which is an absolutely fabulous song. You've also got Obsession by Animotion in there. So there's a lot of uh, interesting alternative rock and 80s throwback musical choices. And it, it, in terms of cinematography and the score, there's some really, really cool stuff going on, visually and sonically attractive. And Daisy Edgar-Jones and Sebastian Stan, they do have good chemistry. And especially in the second act of the film, there's some very interesting moments between Noah and Steve. It starts to sort of probe and really, it really does provoke audience thought about just about, uh, you know, if you were ever presented the opportunity to eat human flesh, would you do it? And what are the psychological and the philosophical ramifications surrounding that? And it communicates that in a, very comedy on the edge way 
um, in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable. It makes you feel uncomfortable in a way that I find, found very smart. Those are all the good things about it. The problem with it is, is that it only intermittently taps into its potential. You've got all these really cool ideas going on and you've got these decent central performances, Sebastian Stan basically essentially being the best one out, you know, out of all the players in the film. And there are some, yeah, there are some very cool, very interesting moments, but it, it, all, it, it eventually all devolves into cliche. There's a little bit of cliche along the way during the first sort of hour of the film, and then it weaves in and out of these compelling scenes that make you think, oh, this is going in a rather dark and interesting and rather brave direction. But then the way that it um, resolves events, um, it was just, I, I was, I had this niggling feeling that it was going to tie things up that way. And when it did tie things up that way, I was quite disappointed because it rendered the film more forgettable than it should have been, really. So the thing with Fresh is that in the context of being a debut, not like sort of letting it off the hook per se, but as the fact, the fact that it's Mimi K's very first film, um, I admire the effort. The screenplay um, by Lauren Kahn and Mimi Cave's direction, it definitely teases at some really, really intriguing imagination. Um, looking forward to see what their next project is, but it just it, it stumbles out the gate towards the end of it because it, it just had, um, there was there's so many scenes in the film that were teasing at something that had refreshing things to say, but it only does that a little bit. And then it just gets quite cookie cutter and basic after that. So, yeah. Bit of a mixed bag. Then, Bit yeah. of a mixed bag, yeah. Not, not, not a terrible film. Not a terrible film. Uh, def I'd say it's definitely worth the one watch. But it throws you that line. Um, it really does throw you that line that leaves you thinking this could have been so much more. It evidently could have been so much more. The, the ingredients were there. But, um, you know, the, the way it was all mixed up and cooked, if you like, when, you, when it was taken out of the oven, it was just a bit, it was all right. A slightly <laughs> overdone steak. A slightly overdone <laughs> steak, unfortunately. <laughs> I yes. love a food analogy. Yes, but not, not complete rubbish. Just, yeah. yeah. It's, it's worth the once over. I hope that the creative team behind it come out with something that um, speaks more to their evident talents. So, yeah. Yeah, cool stuff. Looking forward okay. to see you. Um, I think I might give it a look anyway. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking, yeah it's so quite often if, you see a sort of a, well, not necessarily blockbuster, but a hyped up kind of yeah, film, yeah. you know. Ne next time I see something coming from Mimi Cave and or Lauren Khan, I'm going to be interested. So, you know, I mean, that's that's a positive takeaway. Yeah, absolutely. So next up, and I also watched um, Serrano, directed by Joe Wright. This is obviously based on Serrano de Bergerac. So famously in this tale, it was a, play then I think it's been adapted umpteen million times in musical fashion so Serrano de Bergerac who originally was a sort of a, a soldier and a wordsmith and a well-respected sort of man about town who has a very diabolical complex about the stonking great nose on his face yeah, isn't this I'm trying to struggle to get to the time period of this is it sort of like 17th century or something like that I, I don't know if this adaptation is. I, I don't know. I think it's like early 19th century. Okay. Like late. Yeah, early 19th century, late 18th century sort of thing. Okay. Old, old timey place. Old timey place. Old timey place, yes. And um, well, Serrano de Bergerac, yeah, he's a man with an extraordinarily large nose and he's he gets very upset about this often. It gives him extraordinary complexes about his appearance. And this has been adapted uh, several times. Uh, the one I always go to is uh, Roxanne with Steve Martin. Yeah. It's been done many. I think like Gerard Depardieu uh, did one. Yeah, he did a very famous version. I do remember seeing yeah. that. It's been done multiple times. Well, so Serrano, uh, he's in love with Roxanne, uh, who's a woman he's known for um, a good amount of time, but he is very distressed because Roxanne essentially falls in love at first sight with this young chap named Christian, who's a very handsome, personal young man, but he's also not sharpest tool in the box. And Serrano ends up sending Roxanne letters and poems, uh, declarations of love, um, 
pretending that they are from Christian and she takes this to mean that Christian is an extraordinarily intelligent young man, even though it's actually Serrano who is the genius. It's Serrano who wants to win Roxanne's heart, but he simultaneously doesn't believe he should get in the way of whatever will make Roxanne happy. So it's that, the, the noble romantic thing, essentially. So that's what's at play here. Serrano in this version, as played by Peter Dinklage, he doesn't have the oversized nose. His... Um, you know, the, the the aspect of his appearance that um, fills him with self-doubt and one that earns derision from less enlightened people in his milieu is the fact, well, Peter Dinklage has dwarfism, so Serrano is now a dwarf as opposed to having an oversized honker. I thought that was quite a clever idea when I first started seeing the promos of this to sort of flip the idea on its head. Yeah, you know, it's different. It takes it in a different direction, you know. Yeah. Ch- change, change the... Um, the boner contention, if you like, the thing, the thing that does Serrano's head in about himself, change that up. It was, yeah, it, it's an interesting direction to take it in. And the film, it's, it just follows the, it follows the cycle of, of Serrano. Roxanne, played by Hayley Bennett, um, she's a childhood friend of Serrano. He is a, you know, a, a very well-respected wordsmith, incredibly smart guy, a great swordsman. Um, but there are so many people who don't take him seriously because he is very diminutive. And she falls in love with Christian, who here is played by Kelvin Harrison Jr., who's a young actor I've um, liked in a lot of things now. And yes, same thing. Christian isn't that bright. Um, but with Serrano's machinations, Roxanne comes to believe that Christian is actually a very, very erudite and substantive young man. And this obviously throws Serrano into disarray. He wants to be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and also it is a musical. Oh, God. Yes. I did not know that about it. Um, this film, to, what is a one-word summary of this film? Hideous. Oh, really? Hideous. I have to say, I have seen the one stars and the two star reviews sort of floating the, in on this one. The, mu- the musical numbers in this are bloody awful. They are absolutely atrocious. I've, I've heard you speak several times about how you detest musicals. I do. And there are one or two musicals I've seen which I, I, I did actually enjoy um, for various reasons. You know, the, the, the numbers... They, they either weren't too intrusive or they they did actually work. There were good musical numbers and they and they nestled into the screenplay nicely. It hasn't happened often, but it has happened before. You know, I mean, I like, I like Rocky Horror and Phantom of the Paradise. Mm-hmm. I think that they're great. You know, those are two very unconventional examples that I think I did of. like um, Rocket Man. Yeah, do you know, I still haven't seen that yet. I thought that actually ends great Taron Egerton performance, but I thought the it, yeah. it actually fitted the concept. If you're doing it about a musical superstar, yeah, to have the musical interludes actually made sense. Yeah, because yeah, and I, th- I think that you cited that as an example of um, that f- sort of falsified your long-running absolute hatred of musicals. If only, if only just the ones. It always breaks my immersion. It always, yeah, yeah. Well, um, as Serrano, petty as that sounds, is Serrano is a prime example of immersion breaking with the best will in the world I could not every single time a new song started it, it was it was getting to the point where it was involuntary I was just rolling my eyes and going oh god for fuck's sake because the songs are terrible the songs are, musically they're terrible the lyrics are cheesy and goofy as shit the vocals aren't particularly very good and that it just gets to a point rather early on in the film where I was bracing myself for the next one and I do not think that that was Joe Wright's intention whatsoever but I just couldn't help it and even though you get inklings that Bennett and Dinklage and Harrison Jr they are essentially doing their best with this material I don't I don't I don't I didn't dislike any of their individual performances but there's nothing about their performances that come anywhere close to rectifying Serrano. The direction wasn't very interesting. It was quite a, a, just a dull-looking film. Yeah, there was a very pedestrian visual sense about it. It just didn't look interesting. It didn't feel interesting. And it, I mean, it was only about half an hour into the film where I was thinking to myself, I really 
I couldn't care less about any of these people because this is, I'm going to stick it out to the end. It's a couple of hours fucking long. <coughs> but I was just really, really, oh, just, as I say, with the best will in the world, trying to be as objective and as fair as possible. The numbers alone, the tunes alone, spoils the whole fucking thing. And even if Dinklage and Harrison and Bennett had put in Oscar-worthy performances, there's no way in which it compensates for the atrocious soundtrack and the really boring, unencouraging, flat direction of the film. It was really, really bad. It's such a shame because I was fairly interested in this. Again, for the high concept kind of thing of switching it around because of Peter Dinklage's dwarfism and doing almost like refreshing the tale in that way. I thought it was a good idea. And Peter Dinklage is, as we've talked about many times, a fantastic actor. I really had sort of high hopes that this might be something, but apparently not. No. If this if this film completely dispensed with the musical aspect and also, you know, maybe injected a little bit of grit into it, I would I think that you'd probably be looking at something that would well, I would certainly be reviewing it more favorably in my head. I'm talking about a completely imaginary project here. <laughs> but no, this if it was a totally different film, it'd be good. <laughs> this is one of the films. Um, this is a singular film in in uh, my dislike for it. I don't think I've really dis- I don't think I've disliked a film this hard on the podcast in quite a while. This was, this was an absolute chore to get through. I didn't like one second of it. I didn't care about any of the characters um, because it every, yeah, everything was just shit. <laughs> it honestly was. It was shit. I could not wait for it to end. It was embarrassing and cringy, and just everything in it just seemed like a a very smug afterthought. I don't know. I mean, the, these songs. I don't. Well, I don't, no, I, I didn't bother to check like who wrote the songs and how long they've been around for, and if they've been in other adaptations of Serrano because they're rubbish. They're absolutely rubbish. I was being attentive to to the lyrics whilst they were being belted out. Everything was so stagey and so... Blech. Yeah, I very much did not care for this. I, I've been struggling to think of one positive thing to say about it all day, and I legitimately, with all sincerity, cannot come up with one. Okay. It was crap. <laughs> well, we'll leave that where it is. Yeah. <laughs> Not recommended. <laughs> yeah, I got that. I got that. <laughs> Okie dokie then. On to TV of the week. And this week, well, uh, many, many moons ago on this podcast, I reviewed Vikings. The, yes. Uh, a series that in my mind actually has stood the test of time. I, it seems like it came out forever ago, actually. It wasn't that long ago. And recently I've actually re-watched Vikings and was very pleased to find that all of the things that I liked about it originally were still there. That was, of course, telling the tale of Ragnar Lothbrok, a semi-legendary, no one's quite sure whether he's an amalgam of certain historical characters or whatever, uh, Viking that first sailed across the North Sea from um, this Scandinavian base, began raiding England, and of course, history moves on from that point. You know, the, you know, the Vikings start to become more of a presence in English history. Um, played beautifully by Travis Fimmel in what I consider to be, honestly, one of the best television performances of all time. Mm. I genuinely mean that as well. When I think of great televisual performances and genre-defining performances, I think of James Gandolfini in The Sopranos. I think of Brian Cranston in Breaking Bad. And I honestly think Travis Fimmel's performance was up there. That's how much I liked Vikings. Mm. Preamble over. This week, it's Vikings Valhalla, the new Vikings spin-off series that for some reason that I've yet to discern has turned up on Netflix rather than Amazon Prime. I was aware this series was in production, and Vikings was very famously bought by Amazon and became one of their sort of trademark banner-waving shows. And I was really looking forward to Vikings Valhalla coming out. Suddenly it turned up in my Netflix feed instead. There's been some sort of rights-swapping thing going on here. That is bizarre. So this is created by uh, Jeb Stewart, who was the writer for the original Die Hard and The Fugitive. Well... Two great movies. Two great movies. I mean, it, I mean, is that are those the is that what's off the back of them poaching him for the screenwriting? This I have no idea. I mean, it's, it's getting stranger and stranger. It popped up on Netflix, <laughs> which I absolutely wasn't expecting. It was written by the guy who wrote Die Hard, so immediately we're in dodgy waters here. But anyway, bit of plot set up for you. 
This is set uh, 100 years after the end of Vikings, the original series. And we find ourselves, well, initially with a title card sequence. I'm not a big fan of title card sequences opening shows because, you know, if in doubt, write the plot down. But um, (laughs) we find ourselves in Danelaw, which was a Viking settlement in England on St. Bryce's Day. So again, a big plot point in Vikings was the uh, initial raiding of England and then eventually sort of an incursion into it, the taking of territory, and eventually, some, without giving away too much, some territory is gifted to the Vikings to make them stop turning up and raiding all these temples, etc. We're now 100 years later, and this is an established colony. They've been there for a long time, and everybody seems to pretty much get on at this point. But it is, uh, yes, St. Bryce's Day, and the Vikings are celebrating and having one of their big Viking feasts when everything is interrupted by King Ethelred II, our new ruler of England, who signs an order saying that all Danish settlers in England are to be killed immediately. And so we get a big sort of massacre sequence, roofs on fire, children running away screaming, all that kind of stuff. All, he's basically gone back on the one of the big plot points of Vikings, which is this land was eventually gifted to them. He said, no, it wasn't. Uh, my predecessors were, yeah, it was a ridiculous thing. Idiots. In- England for the English, you know, which is quite a modern theme, I think. But yes, anyway, unfortunately so. So we then find, once we've got another title card sequence explaining what you've just seen happen, that everybody's back in Norway and Kattegat, which is uh, the famous village where, fishing village and trading port, that it was sort of the anchor point of the original Vikings show. And we meet some of our new characters. We have um, Sam Corlett, playing Leif Erikson or Leif Erikson. Now, does that name ring a bell? It certainly does. Yeah, quite a famous Viking in history. Part of this show is sort of his um, Genesis story, if you like. We find him traveling from his native Greenland over to this Viking settlement. He's there with his sister Freydis. And they have come for sort of nefarious purposes. It's revealed during the first episode that Freydis was abused uh, previously by a Viking from this settlement. And they've come to seek their revenge. When they turn up, however, to carry out their clandestine mission, they find that actually all the Vikings there are banding together to form an army to go back to England and avenge the uh, horrible massacre that took place in the opening sequence. Uh, This army is led by King Knut, played by uh, Bradley Freeguard. And we also have um, Harold Sigurdsson, played by Leo Suter. Now, he's the, I believe, great-grandson of Harold Finehair, who was a very big character, again, in the original Viking run. So Leif and his sister find themselves caught up in a gigantic army across the continent, a big invasion back, uh, circumstances that they weren't originally prepared for. And the plot moves forward from there. I know this is a bit of a brief and vague setup, but you should see the way the show does it. Because all of this is sort of on fast forward. It's all right. title card, massacre, title card. We're all over here now. This guy, this guy, this guy. Big army. Here we go. Over to England again. In a way that just makes you go, oh, well, let's not bother with plot set up then, really. Let's just write it down for the audience. And yeah, the show essentially goes, yeah, go with it, guys. Go with it. We're going to do more Vikings, okay? Just stick with us and you'll see some more swords and heads coming off and all that kind of stuff. Which was definitely a problem for me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right from the get-go. One of the things that made the original Vikings great was it focused on characterization. And it focused on, and you can sort of see where I'm going here, very interesting characters. Yeah, Ragnar Lothbrok, again, fantastic choice for more performance. You had um, Floki, his best mate, boat builder, a bit of a religious zealot in regard to... Lizard in in our case, yes, the the namesake of our our famous cinematalist mascot. But he was a bit of a religious zealot. He was Ragnar's best mate, built boats for him, but didn't like the fact that Ragnar gradually began to see things from a Christian-English perspective, created a lot of conflict there. He also had Lagatha as well, who was the strong shield maiden. Brilliant example of a well-written, strong female lead character that cut her own way through the plot. He had all this interesting characterization. And... Vikings, the original series, sort of hit a bit of a hiccup in that without going into spoilers, I'm going to to be very careful here and people who have seen the show will know what I mean. Round about the season four mark, it made a big change in terms of its cast and characters. And from that point onwards, it decided to introduce some new ones. And as a result, the show suddenly shifted down a gear and it got bogged down in these new characters. These new characters really weren't as interesting as the old ones. And it was a bit of a problem for the show, and it took it all of season five to eventually slowly build up these new characters in a way where you think, actually, by the end of season five, 
it kind of works. You know, I'm now interested in these guys. They're not as quite as interesting as the old guys, but the new guys are interesting enough that it feels like Vikings, I'm prepared to go forward with it at this point. This show feels like another extension of that. In the, if the second half of Vikings, the original show, was a copy of the first half of the show, but slightly lesser, this is a copy of a copy. And is therefore slightly lesser still. Right. Basically, the characters are nowhere near as interesting as the ones that made Vikings so great in the first place. Part of that's to do with some stilted acting, I'm uh, sad to say. Sam Corlett, Frieda Gustafsson, I mean, they're not, they're not terrible performances. I, I think the fault actually lies more with the writing than the acting, but there is some stilted dialogue and some stuff here, and some blank looks and things where you just think, yeah, Travis Fimmel or Gustav Skarsgård would have done something with that. You know, there's a sort of slight woodenness. It's not too bad, but there's a definite tiki quality coming through in those performances, which I wasn't a fan of. A couple of good performances as well. Um, Bradley Freegard as King Knut, this rampaging, um, I believe he's a Danish king that's leading the Viking army over. So he actually plays it in a way that I thought to myself constantly while watching him play his character, you actually would have fit in in the original series. Yeah. So that's a nice thing to do. Yeah, it suffers by sheer comparison to its original. And the problem with making a copy of a copy of a copy is that the further away you get from the original, the more the lines become blurred. And as a result, characters are less sharply drawn. The plots are less sharply drawn. Everything's just a little bit less interesting. But what I do have to say about it is, number one, as the series continues, it does get better and better and better. And that gives me hope towards the future for it. But, you, know, you do sort of start to get behind these characters, just not in the way you did for the originals. And also, the production values are pretty much identical. That really helps this show. Yeah. It looks like Vikings. The camera movements are the same. The costuming's the same. The set pieces. And Vikings is always good at these really good, like, you know, really kinetic battle sequences and gore and blood and dimly lit halls and gray fields of, you know, carnage, that kind of thing. Looks the same, feels the same. It's the show's ace card. It's the thing it's holding up its sleeve is that, hey, I know these characters aren't as interesting. I know the plot isn't as interesting. I know it's going to take you a while to get on board with this, but it sort of feels right. And in that sense, that's the thing that carries this show through. Essentially, in essence, this could easily feel like a Vikings ripoff. It doesn't. It manages to keep that feeling of continuity, mainly through the visuals and mainly through the cinematic aspect of it. But it's just enough to keep you watching it long enough to actually start to get behind the characters. This show moving forward, I'd really like to see the dialogue brought up to a better level. And I'd like to see the actors, I mean, I don't know what the problem is, and maybe they need more takes, maybe they're rushing through it a little bit, but I'd like to see the actors give it a bit more quirk, a bit more, you know, little ticks and movements and things. Far too many scenes end with characters staring at each other blankly like they've just been told the bus is late. <laughs> and, and you just think to yourself, ah, ah, that almost got there, that almost got there. The, the script just isn't quite dynamic enough. The performances aren't quite dynamic enough. But if you liked the original Vikings, as I did, then you're probably going to have some fun with it. It's just nothing really in comparison. For the love of God, if you've never seen any of these, don't start off with Vikings Valhalla. That'd be the weirdest thing to go in at the weakest point in the series. If any, you know, if that whole thing about Travis Fimmel's amazing performance and why I like the original show got you going, by all means, go back to the original. But presuming you've got to that point, presuming you've got to the point where you've done all the Vikings and you're looking for fresh content, it's not the worst thing in the world. It's, there's room for improvement, but I think that it could potentially grow into the show that it needs to. So once again, a bit of a mixed bag, but I know quite a few people were quite disappointed with it. I was for the first couple of episodes. It does eventually get going to a point where I'm like, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind seeing more of it. So what I mean, what has these general critical reception been like? Uh, it seems to be, yeah, people very much criticizing some of the stilted performances and just going, oh, it doesn't have the heart and feel of the original show. I actually think that's wrong. I think it does have the heart and feel of the original show. It's some of the dialogue writing and some of the dialogue delivery letting it down a little bit. But as I said, as the series goes on, again, I wonder how many people actually watched it through to the end or just gave up on it and went, no, it's a Vikings ripoff. Because by about episode four or five, it's actually got you know several plot arcs going at once. It's got some sort of 
backstabbing, twisting machinations going on, which again was a big thing of why the original Viking show was so great. There were always five or six plots going and people betraying each other and backstabbing and you know, all that medieval great stuff. Someone gets poisoned over here, someone gets stabbed through the eye over here. Oh my God, she's fucking him. You know, all that kind of stuff. It's, it takes a little while to set all of that up. And whilst also being kind of perfunctory in its pace and it just feels off. Yeah. But eventually it does hit the rhythm that made me think, yeah, actually, this feels like Vikings, and that's, well, that's really what it's trying it's to achieve. Like one, one thing that I noticed to be ubiquitous with um, you know, things like spin-offs, especially spin-offs and reboots and sequel shows, etc., etc., is you have so many people who say things like, try to think of it as its own animal. And it's like, well, what's, what's the point of the association then? Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're all, you're, it's inevitable that you're going to compare and contrast with the... Um, you know, the inaugural work. Yeah, it's so. got it's got huge shoes to fill, you know, and so as a result, all, just about all spin-offs really are going to be, there's going to be some level of disappointment because it's never quite going to reach the mark. It's very rare for a spin-off show to overtake the original. And Vikings was a great show and I really, really enjoyed the hell out of it and massively enjoyed my rewatch. But there are seeds there and the visual continuity and the, the feel of the piece really does help it out. But I think... I think you're probably going to watch the first couple of episodes and think, oh God, this is this is Vikings, but if Vikings wasn't written very well. <laughs> and I'm pleased to say that it does sort itself out, but could do better. Season two is another chance, shall we say. But mm. um, yeah, I've got a good feeling about it in the long run. And like I said, Vikings itself actually stumbled over at a point and it managed to pick itself back up. So, you know, go Jeb. <laughs> yeah, we've been... Seems that we've both been watching uh, some relatively mediocre, mediocre things this week. Just... They're the hardest ones to review, as we yeah. always say. When you've got, it's easy to launch into a review about something that's really great. It's easy to launch into a review about something that's really bad. When it sits somewhere in the middle, you're left going, eh, hmm, yeah. And that's not exciting content for our listeners, but you know, that's what we've been watching this the week. Wor- the worst ones they are. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this will get everybody excited because, I mean, you know how much I'm in love with my own trivia section. Of course. You've given me a perfect opportunity this week, Liam. Cannibals. Cannibals. Okay, yeah, sure. Cannibal trivia. Cannibal trivia. Let's get deep and dark. I've got a few facts here to start off with, and then I've got a little story at the end. We're going to, uh, everybody's going to gather around the campfire for uh, a story I found earlier that sort of blew my mind. But let's start off with some facts Excellent. first. Humans are mostly hardwired against cannibalism, but not always. There's a good biological reason why cannibalism is taboo in virtually every culture. Eating other humans can make you sick. Specifically, eating the brain of another human being can cause kuru, a brain disease that's similar to mad cow disease. Kuru occurs because our brains contain prions that transmit the disease. Symptoms begin with trembling and end in death. (laughs) Wonderful. What's surprising, though, is that this isn't always the case. Among anthropologists, the four people in Papua New Guinea are known for their cannibalism. Up until the late 1950s, they ate the bodies of relatives to cleanse their spirits. Thousands of four contracted kuru and died. Kuru actually comes from the four word for shaking. But not all of them fell victim to the disease. Over the last 200 years, some four have developed a genetic mutation that protects them from the prions that transmit kuru. The four were adapting to cannibalism with natural selection possibly playing a role in reducing their susceptibility to disease. Scientists have been trying to study this further, but in recent decades, cannibalism has been declining among the four because of changing social mores and laws. If that continues, Kuru may be wiped out entirely. Well, I believe it was you who first told me about um, Prion's disease. Yeah, terrifying. Sounds, yeah, wonderful. You can get it from eating uh, animal brains as well, which initially you think to yourself, well, I don't eat brains, so that's fine. But they're actually in a lot more products than you think. I mean, you know, think about your sausages. It's just essentially where your brain melts. Kind of, yeah. If I remember correctly, it causes your neurons to disconnect or something like that. It causes breakdown in your neural chains in a in horrifying fashion. Yeah, yeah. Horrifying. Good stuff. A yeah. horrifying podcast. It wouldn't, yeah, it wouldn't be sentimentalist trivia without some horrifying facts. <laughs> There is something called involuntary auto-cannibalism. Almost every human being alive today practices this form of cannibalism. Eating dead skin cells, biting fingernails, etc. are all considered involuntary auto-cannibalism. This, apparently, is very benign. When you think about it, 
I mean, they're slightly disgusting, but I find if I'm nervous or whatever, I bite the dead skin off the side of my fingers. Yeah, where your nail bed meets your, the tip of your finger. Yeah. Everybody does that to a degree, don't they? It's auto-cannibalism. Yeah. I, when I get bored, I tend to, you know, nibble on bits of myself. So. <laughs> what a lovely mental image. Absolutely. We're creating. Yeah. Yeah. Did that just for you. <laughs> the only way to really know what human flesh tastes like is to ask the cannibals. That's exactly what some researchers did. While the results were varied, with some saying it tastes like beef, pork, or veal, the overall consensus seemed to tip towards pork, which makes sense since the Pacific Island name for human flesh is long pig. Mm. Okie dokie. We taste like pork. Uh, I wonder how much money, how much money would you have to bung to Ramsay or Pierre White for them to <laughs> cook up a human steak? Yeah, you know. Well, mate, mate, have you watched Gordon Ramsay's steak sandwich video? Yes. Yeah, you, I know you mean. I mean, that is the bollocks. Mm. I mean, out of curiosity, do that with a little bit of thigh here, <laughs> a bit of forearm there, see how it comes out. There was that guy, um, I believe it was a German artist a few years ago, who um, he deliberately had, I think, a piece of his thigh surgically removed, and he invited people around to his house to come and eat it with him. And so that throws up the interesting thing of, well, presumably one of the big reasons you don't eat other people is that the non-consensual, like the butchery of a human being, what if that human being voluntarily does it and offers you a piece? I think that would alleviate a lot of ethical concerns. Yeah. I mean, if, if they are, especially if they've been uh, subjected to some sort of, uh, you know, psychological rigor and they are completely of sound mind and they're like, no, no, I really want, I really want to do this, you know, just a bit of it, you know, because I'm interested in it. I think, okay, it's weird, but doesn't really sound like anyone's being harmed. If you got an invite to that German artist's house, he said, come over here, we're going to eat some of my thigh, would you go? I, well, I'm not going to lie and say that I wouldn't think about it. Oh yeah, I definitely think about it. I don't, I can't decide whether I go or not. No, I mean, it, it, you're getting into, um, that's the thing, you're getting into very murky territory, even, even with those requisites, even though it, there's complete and utter in this, scenario it sounds like there's complete and utter consent and affirmation and nothing is being done that nobody's approved of mm. so that that makes it sit a bit more comfortably i mean it's still wacky as fuck <laughs> and very unusual and i still can't get away from it being rather dark in and of itself but you know that's just the thing we're, we're that's all evolutionary psychology i'd, I'd give it a think yeah. I'd, I'd have a little think about it. It's interesting it. you brought up evolution, actually, because doing my research for this, uh, Richard Dawkins tweeted a few years ago about the sort of the moral problem of it in that uh, we're now to a point where we're developing artificial meat. So taking cells and then growing meat in factories and then you know, selling it as almost like an ethical alternative and a more sustainable alternative. But if you can do that with a cow or a pig, you can also do that with humans. Yeah. So if we were to create artificial human meat, would that offset? the moral opposition towards eating Well, yeah, I mean, flesh. one thing I do think to myself is that what if I did exactly what you just posited there? What if I did that? What if I accepted an invite like that and I had a morsel of human flesh and then I thought to myself, that tastes really, yeah. really good. <laughs> Best meat I've ever had. No, what? Steak will never be the same. It's like, what the f It's like, what am I going to do? I can't do this. So how how frequently will this come along? What's that phrase? Oh God, I hope this doesn't awaken something in me. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Well then, to finish off, uh, it's now Andy's story time. So pull up oh, a chair. yes, I love a good story. Get yourself comfortable because I'm going to tell you the story of Sawney Bean. Oh, I know who Sawney Bean is. Sawney yeah. Bean, Scotland's most famous cannibal. And I'm reading directly here from an article on historyuk.com to give full credit. Little is known for certain about his early life. However, Sawney Bean is believed to have been born in East Lothian in the late 15th century and was a tanner by trade. The latter part of his life is a little better documented following his relocation across country to Ayrshire and his marriage. The newly wed Mr. and Mrs. Sawney Bean set up home at Bene Cave by Ballantrae in Ayrshire, Scotland. Bene Cave was rather an imposing abode, with tunnels penetrating the solid rock and extending for more than a mile in length. In addition, the accommodation featured lots of side passages where a young couple could extend into and convert over the next 25 years to accommodate a growing family. 
The cave's entrance was flooded for several hundred meters twice a day at high tide, a nice draft exclusion feature. Lacking a trade, it was Sawney's plan to support his new wife on the proceeds of robbery. It proved a simple enough matter to ambush travelers on the lonely narrow roads that connected to the villages of the area. Then it dawned on him that in order to help make sure that he could never be identified for his crimes, he should murder his victims. To avoid those unnecessary visits to the shops for provisions whilst at the same time disposing of any evidence, he came upon the bright idea of butchering the bodies to provide a high-protein diet of human meat for himself and his wife. The high-protein diet seemed to have been effective, as Mrs. Bean began to produce little baby beans. Fourteen little beanie babies in total, each with a very unhealthy appetite for human flesh. (laughs) As the beanie babies grew up, and in turn through incest to produce beanie babies of their own, Their cooking pots increased in size dramatically. Over two decades, generations of Beanie Babies grew up in Benet Cave, refining their skills of murder and cannibal cuisine, including the now lost art of salting and pickling the flesh. Finds of curiously preserved but decaying body parts were discovered washed up on the surrounding beaches in the area. The local authorities have by now established what must have been, and what must still be to this date, the longest missing persons list ever produced. Although mass searches of the area were carried out in order to locate either the missing people or their murderers, nobody ever thought to search the depths of Bennett Cave. As the years went by, the family grew older, and thanks to their high-protein diet, bigger. And as the family grew, so did their appetite. As many as half a dozen victims would be ambushed and killed at a time in military-style operations by the Sawney Bean Army. The bodies were taken back to the cave to be carefully prepared for the larder by the women folk. Even in the best planned operations, however, things sometimes go wrong. It happened one evening for the Sawney Bean Army, when they attacked a man and his wife as they were returning home from a nearby fair. One group pulled the woman from her horse and had her stripped and disemboweled before the other group had a chance to wrestle the man to the ground. Realizing the fate that was about to befall him, he fought desperately to escape, driving his horse into and over his attackers. As he fought for his life, a group of 20 or so people also returning from the fair happened upon the scene. After a brief and violent exchange, the Sawney Bean army found itself, for the first time ever, at a numerical disadvantage and promptly retreated back to the cave to consider their situation. As they retreated, they left behind the mutilated body of a woman as evidence, a score of witnesses, and one very angry husband. The man was taken before the chief magistrate of Glasgow, who after hearing the tale and putting this together with his longest missing persons this ever and the many reports of the mysterious pickled body parts, decided to take the matter straight to the top. King James I promptly arrived in Ayrshire with a small army of 400 men and a pack of tracker dogs and together with a band of local volunteers launched one of the biggest manhunts the country had ever seen. Like before, the search extended through the Ayrshire countryside and coastline and like before, nothing was discovered. That was, however until the dogs picked up the scent of decaying human flesh whilst passing a partly waterlogged cave. The manhunt was closing in. By torchlight, the troops entered Bene Cave, and with swords drawn, they proceeded down the mile-long twisting passage to the inner depths of the Sawney Bean family lair. Nothing could have prepared them for the sight they witnessed that day. The damp walls of the cave were strewn with row upon row of human limbs and body parts, like meat hanging in a butcher's shop. Other areas of the cave store bundles of clothing, piles of watches and rings, and heaps of discarded bones from previous feasts. After a brief fight, the entire Sawney Bean family, all 48 of them, were arrested and marched off to Edinburgh. Their crimes were considered so heinous that the normal justice system for which Scotland is so renowned was abandoned and the entire family were sentenced to death. The following day, the 27 men of the family met a fate similar to that of many of their victims by having their legs and arms cut off and being left to slowly bleed to death, watched by their women. The 21 women were burned like witches in huge fires. And so the Ballad of Sawney Bean records their end. They've hung them high in Edinburgh Toon, and likewise are their kin. And the wind blows cold on their bands, and to hell they hegin. Mm, damn. Good night, sentimentalists. <laughs> <laughs> that is one hell of a story. I mean, ripe for adaptation, I think, or could possibly be too graphic even for modern audiences, that one. But uh, yeah, and uh, quite a quite a gory ending, you know, had their arms and legs cut off. I, I mean, it sounds like they deserved it, to be honest. You know, I mean, we're not going to get into the whole capital punishment debate, but, uh, you know, bastards, all of them, bastards. Yeah, they sound like a bunch of cunts. They've always <laughs> come into them, fuck them. 
<laughs> well, once again, the sentimentalist dismissiveness. <laughs> yeah, a bunch of cunts. <laughs> Sawney Bean is a fucking arsehole. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that happy note, anyway, sleep tightly. Uh, we're going to go and record the premium podcast now. Uh, Liam's going to be reviewing, well, some stuff. I believe you've got a lot to choose from this week, so I'm not going to pin you down on which ones you do, but I believe we might be having a discussion about The Fugitive. Uh, anything else? Um... Well, just uh, I think we're gonna thought have a good old chat about Mr. Hackman, really. Yes, Mr. Gene Hackman is yeah. going to be uh, the second half of our podcast. I think we've ever done him before, which is very strange because he's easily one of my favourite actors, and he's done some stonkingly brilliant stuff. Huge career, ninety-two years now, Gene Hackman. Ninety-two, yeah, yeah. And, uh, I mean, long retired, but uh, yeah, he's he's he made some um, he made some real real crackerjack stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, if you fancy joining us for any of our premium content, please do check out cinementalist.com for a link to our Patreon page. You can follow us at Cinementalcast on Twitter and you can follow Liam at... Liam at the movies at Wacko Jacko's Flicks. Excellent. Yeah, hope to see you over on the premium content, guys. Like I said, going to be pausing there free for a couple of weeks, but obviously we'll be back after that. Absolutely. Um, Hope to see you over on the other stuff. Hope to see you there, guys. Take it easy. <laughs>